Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Hubert Robert. My guest is Eurico Jacal, a co-curator of Hubert Robert 1733-1808, a retrospective of the French artist's drawings and paintings at the National Gallery of Art. The show features over 100 objects detailing Robert's interest in architectural ruin, the French landscape, and in the major events of his day, especially the French Revolution. It is the first monographic exhibition of Robert's work in the United States, and the first anywhere, since 1933. The exhibition is at the National Gallery of Art, which co-organized it with the Louvre through October 2nd. Chacal's co-curators included the Louvre's Guillaume Ferreau and the National Gallery's Margaret Morgan Griselli. The exhibition catalog was published by the National Gallery in association with Lund Humphreys. On the second segment, we'll hear an excerpt from my 2016 conversation with Metropolitan Museum of Art curator Catherine Bacher, who recently co-organized a retrospective of Robert contemporary Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun. But first, Eureka Chacal, after the break. Nan Golden, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Golden's deeply personal slideshow, comprised of nearly 700 snapshot-like portraits, sequenced against an evocative music soundtrack and presented in its original 35mm format, is an unforgettable, immersive experience. You can also enjoy live music and refreshments in the Abbey Aldrich Rock Filler Sculpture Garden, which currently features awe-inspiring works made in the 1960s, like Ellsworth Kelly's 14-foot-tall Green Blue. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. Support for The Man Podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting three exhibitions that reframe the objects and environments of everyday life, July 29th through October 15th, 2016. Exquisite Every Day showcases 18th century European works of decorative art from the J. Paul Getty Museum that highlight the period's achievements in domestic design. The Ordinary Must Not Be Dull explores how Class Oldenburg's soft sculptures playfully alter the material, form, and scale of commonplace items, overturning sculptural conventions. Architecture Collective Raumleber Berlin's commission 4562 Enright Avenue disassembles a structurally unsound St. Louis house, giving its salvaged elements new life inside the Pulitzer as an installation that explores the history, present, and future of urban dwellings. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Yuriko Chakal, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. I'm happy to be here. I think that to begin to understand Robert and what he painted and where and why, we should start with the artist's family background. He comes of age in, in, the, early 19, in the early 1750s in France. What did his father do and how did that kind of provide a launching point, if you will, for Robert's career? So Robert was the son of servants in a noble household. His parents worked for the Stanville family, 
And it was really due to their patronage that Robert benefited from a very high-level education. He was educated at a Jesuit college in Paris and was exposed to languages and classical history. And then when he was 21, he was taken to Rome in the entourage of his parents' employer's son, the Comte de Stainville, who eventually became the Duc de Choiseul. So he goes to Rome. He, he, he doesn't win the Prix de Rome or anything like that. He's basically, I guess, in residence at the French Academy, right? Yes. So Robert, it's, it's actually quite unusual. In, in this period, in the 18th century, artists typically had to compete for the so-called Rome Prize, which would take them to Rome in part of the context of the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture. And they would have lodging at the um, Royal Academy's satellite in Rome and their expenses would be paid. Robert kind of entered through the back door. He was, you know, as I said, the protege of this uh, nobleman. And he traveled to Rome with his entourage, and his expenses were paid that way for the first part of his uh, period in Rome. But then quickly his talent, you know, sort of brought him to the fore and to the attention of officials in the, in the Roman Academy. And so he was eventually given a place there and able to live there and really interact with all of the other artists, including Fragonard, who is, you know, probably one of Robert's most famous friends in Rome. So to what is he attracted there? What, what, what catches his eye and had that caught his eye before he was in Rome? Well, as I said, I think, you know, it's interesting that he came with such a strong classical education and a really firm grounding in Greek and Latin and classical history. And so I'm sure that when he arrived in Rome, he, you know, immediately started seeing things, a whole range of, you know, monuments and sort of the remains of ancient history that he knew quite a bit about. He had a much better education, I would say, than many artists of his time. And so certainly, you know, was really kind of well prepared to recognize what he was seeing around him. And indeed, Roman monuments and architecture and ruins became very quickly a focal point in his work. While he was in Rome, he also studied with and was very much influenced by two artists who were prominent members of the 18th century Roman, you know, sort of artistic scene. One of them was Penini, who had pioneered the sort of uh, genre of uh, the architectural fantasy or what we call capriccio, that is uh, monuments being, uh, disparate monuments being represented uh, together in one composition. And the other artist who was important for Robert was Piranese, who was really, you know, sort of pushing the boundaries in terms of experimenting with fantastical architecture and sort of, you know, nightmarish architectural scenes that uh, lead the eye in and kind of where the spectator starts to feel a bit lost and claustrophobic and um, scenes of, you know, sort of repeating arches, for instance. Piranese is very well known for his scenes of uh, prison. And so both of these artists were really interested in the representation of architecture, but coming, coming to it from different angles. And I think that they both had a strong influence on Robert and really in terms of refining his already existing interest in what he was seeing around him in Rome. 
let's turn to a couple of the the paintings he's, he's making in this period. They're full of ruins, but they're also full of contemporary life being lived in those ruins. Not 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 you know as it was actually lived, but but you know they're I don't know they're not quite genre scenes. Is there a word for them? <laughs> You know, I would call them sort of architectural genre scenes, actually. I think you're absolutely right. And that becomes a sort of particularity of Robert's work and one that he returns to again and again, even after he returns to France. He is fascinated by contemporary life, what he sees around him, you know, this sort of Roman color. And he was known for going out, you know, in the Roman landscape and drawing and painting alongside his friend Fragonard. And he was really interested in, you know, the sort of juxtaposition that arises from daily life being lived alongside these monuments and the sort of larger themes that arise, you know, the idea that life is sort of ephemeral, but the monuments stay. And so, you know, what it brings up about the passage of time and the idea of transience. And so in Rome, he explores these themes in what often comes across as a very sort of lighthearted and charming way. And his paintings at this point also tend to be a little more sort of small scale, closer to what we think of as genre scenes. And then when he returns to Paris, he he starts taking it in a different direction. Yeah, one of the juxtapositions is, you know, in, in paintings that are kind of 25 inches to a side, so really quite quite small. He's painting these massive scenes, such as in A Hermit Praying in the Ruins of a Roman Temple from about 1760, a painting that's at the Getty, or in Remains of the Palace of Pope Julius. Why is it important to Robert to not just feature, you know, monumental buildings in a state of disrepair, but contemporary humans within these scenes, usually women, of course? I think that he is, you know, as I said, really interested in this this sort of juxtaposition of the present and the past. And in many cases, that's a very humorous interaction. But it's often, you know, these two sort of time periods or layered time periods really colliding and bumping up against each other. So, you know, in, in the remains of the Palace of Pope Julius, first of all, it's a really interesting painting in that, He's taken this, you know, ancient papal palace and he's really enlarged the proportion so that the vaulted ceiling is much higher than it is in in um, or than it was in real life and certainly wasn't full of bales of hay as it is in the in, in Robert's painting. And then, you know, he's turned it really into big this, bales of hay. Exactly. He's <laughs> turned it into this, you know, de facto barn. And so there's this sort of commentary about it was this really venerable monument, you know, the seat of an incredibly powerful person, and it's now being used in a completely pragmatic way and, a, you know, a way that sort of really goes against the initial intention. And in that particular painting, I it's it's extremely charming. He has these animals in the foreground and in one of them the the horse is turning its head towards the um towards us and looks extremely disgruntled as it's being saddled up with hay. And so, you know, even the animals seem to be sort of commenting on this juxtaposition in that painting. Um, in a way that's very charming, but also, you know, that that has a profound undertone. 
Yeah, there's a man in the right foreground who's kind of leaning against and maybe napping on the rear half of a horse, and the horse itself appears to be to be taking a nap. So I kind of artlessly chose paintings from the late 1750s and, and early 1760s. Robert keeps making paintings in this vein, obviously, into the 70s and 80s. So other than the picturesqueness of of playing contemporary life against ancient ruins, is he suggesting or engaging with any particular French thought about the rot of the pre-revolutionary French state? Well, that's an interesting question and one that you can certainly ask yourself as you see his works into the 1780s. I think it's a bit complicated because, you know, Robert, of course, couldn't know what was going to happen. But I think that he's also someone that is so in tune with his society and so well connected. And I should sort of back up and say that when he returned to Paris, he, you know, thanks to his connections and the fact that he had this aristocratic support, you know, even from an early age, he immediately comes into contact with a whole circle of, you know, the highest levels of aristocrats. He starts painting for the monarchy. He's painting really for the sort of most prominent members of French society and interacting with them in a very sort of immediate way because his his commissions tend to be long-term and detailed. And so there's a lot of exchange about what he's doing. And I think he was also a very sociable person who tended to get along with people quite easily. And so he was really accepted into this society. So he's someone that really kind of had his finger on the pulse of what was going on. And he couldn't not have been aware of, you know, sort of this growing feeling of stress and anxiety that I think was starting to be pervasive in the 1780s in France and, and a real sense that, you know, certain certain classes were completely out of touch with other classes. And so while I don't know that he is really necessarily kind of predicting a certain outcome, I think that his work does seem to be a way of channeling some of these anxieties. And, you know, certainly these kinds of ongoing painted commentaries on the decline and rise and fall of ancient civilizations, you know, the rise and fall of ancient Rome, juxtaposed against scenes of contemporary life in which you have people sort of going about their business and and using monuments in a very pragmatic way. I I think that he, he does seem to be channeling some sort of cultural anxiety. Let me just fill in the timeline a little bit. So Robert arrives in Rome in 1754. He returns to Paris, or to France anyway, and in what, about 1765? 1765, yes. Are there any paintings um, that you think are really good examples of what you were you were just describing, maybe one or two that kind of gets at that? I don't know if ennui is the word, but ennui. Yeah, there is a painting that is in the fourth gallery of the exhibition. It's the antique Capriccio with the statue of Marcus Aurelius. It's on loan to us from the French embassy in London. And it's a part of a, a pair of architectural Capri- Capricci, I guess, um, architectural fantasies. In this particular painting, you have this very recognizable equestrian statue of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. This is a statue that did exist. In Rome, it was presented in the Piazza del Campidoglio. Robert has removed it from this you know, recognizable setting and repositioned it under a triumphal arch that he has sort of imagined. 
that he's completely imagined. And so he has the statue in the center of this arch and on the neck from the neck of the the horse it's an equestrian statue someone's hung a clothesline and that's con- that's going between the um, the horse's neck and the arch and uh, so there's all this laundry hanging being supported by the statue white laundry you can't miss it <laughs> dead dead smack middle of the painting <laughs> yes exactly and then he has people sort of little family groups that seem to be sort of basically squatting in the arch, you know, have moved in and created sort of households um, on different stories of the arch, on different floors of the arch. And so, you know, it's really this example of something that has been completely decontextualized and is now reappropriated for a new audience and being used in a very sort of practical way. Uh, These people had to live and they had to do their laundry And so, you know, they don't care at all about this sort of grandeur or fame of this former emperor. Now, you know, he's just become a a means to an end. So nobody in France is ever going to think uh, Marcus Aurelius or a statue referencing him is a direct reference to a French monarch or to the French state because, you know, it's Marcus Aurelius. But everybody, pretty much everybody in the painting is wearing you know, the, the, these kind of lower class peasants, laundry doing types. That's a phrase I'll never use again. Um, <laughs> they're wearing red, white, and blue. Well, yeah. I think that some of Robert's works can be quite ambiguous in that sense. And certainly, you know, it's complicated because he was such good friends with so many of the people who were really not eager to see the Ancien Regime end. So, you know, I don't know. I think that he is putting his finger on a sort of generalized anxiety. I think people felt that the situation couldn't continue. There were people who were starving and, you know, really discontented. And that was increasingly felt uh, throughout the 1780s. And certainly, you know, there was a, a huge amount of anxiety about the national debt. And, you know, I think it may be a sense that France was sort of in its years of decadence. So the revolution has a big impact on big impact on Robert. We'll get to that a little bit later. Your essay in the catalog, which which is great fun, is is titled "Robert in the Art of Decoration," um, and and it describes an approach that, in the terms of today's art world, would be called installation art. Really, and and in your phrase for what Robert did and made for for clients was um, or is decorative ensembles. What are they, and how did they work? Robert painted numerous groups of large-scale works, usually about four to six paintings that were meant to go together and to be installed in one specific room. The decorative ensemble about which I wrote my essay is in our exhibition. There are works that are on loan to us from the Art Institute of Chicago, and actually they have not left the museum since 1900. So their loan to us is a really major event in and of itself. And the four paintings are installed together in a single gallery of the exhibition and I think are really quite stunning in their presentation. Generally speaking, Robert, so he was extremely well known for painting these large scale groups, um, these decorative ensembles. However, very few of them have remained intact because of their size and the Chicago paintings measure about 
uh, nine by seven feet. So they're really huge and transporting them isn't easy. And obviously, you know, it's most people don't have the space to have four of them together. All of Robert's decorative ensembles were about this size. And so you can understand why they would have been split up. You know, as as time went on, as houses were sold, paintings changed hands, they would be the groups would be split up piecemeal. Yeah, so we're really lucky to have groups that are, you know, still together and then to have this specific group grouping in our show because it's a it's an ensemble for which we we know not only that these four paintings were done together, that they've been together. Um, ever since the 18th century. But we also know, um, and this is rare for Robert, for whom they were painted and even now which room, in which room of the house they were installed. Um, and so researching their history and trying to really understand how they were installed, I felt gave me a lot of insight into Robert. And you're right, I think that I would argue thought about space in a, in a very modern way. It's a real example of a kind of interest in site specificity in his art and I think in, in 18th century French painting in general that it seems fairly unique uh, thinking about space and you know thinking about the three-dimensionality of his art as opposed to you know many artists who are painting and drawing in obviously in two dimensions. Well I have images of all four of these on, on manpodcast.com. Two of them have that kind of particular angularity three-dimensionality that you just mentioned. So how how did Robert design or intend for these installations to work? Does he just start with dimensions in his studio and a subject, or do they start in the patron salon, you know, with him getting a sense of space and mirrors and windows and maybe a patron hinting at a subject? Or how, did, how, do, how do we kind of get from zero to, to objects? Well... Again, you know, it's often been very difficult to reconstruct this because we just don't know where many of these paintings are from and we don't know for whom they were intended. So the opportunity to to research the Chicago group and to find so much information about them actually really helps to maybe illuminate some of these questions. And, you know, hopefully they can sort of serve as a paradigmatic case. So while we can't know what Robert's process was every time by studying this this grouping of works, maybe we can shed a little bit of light on how he would have thought. In this specific grouping, Robert, Robert was asked to paint for this room. It's called the Petit Salon of Laborde's, the ground floor of Laborde's house, um, the patron, and called the Petit Salon, or little living room, as opposed to the Grand Salon, or large living room. We have a floor plan now of the ground floor that I was able to find, and this indicates that the Petit Salon was right in the heart of the ground floor. We know that the floor plan had essentially been decided by the time Robert came into the project. And we also, I think, have a fairly good sense that many of the structural elements were in place. So certainly deciding where windows would be or where mirrors would be, those were things that Robert had to work around. And I think that he also you know, knew which specific walls would hold paintings, in terms of the size, and so he was painting really for specific places in the room when he started the project. We should add that one of the reasons that, that we don't know how all of these or even many of these Robert installations worked 
is that not only do we not necessarily know what paintings went together, although we do for this example, but of course many of those houses were chopped up or destroyed or, or otherwise massively modified during um, the revolutionary yeah. <laughs> events to come. <laughs> exactly. And actually the four paintings in question were removed from the chateau during the revolution. The owner was imprisoned and ultimately executed, uh, guillotined. And the four paintings, so they were removed from the chateau and basically confiscated along with all of the other furniture and rugs and other paintings in this house. We are incredibly lucky because in the process of taking everything, the revolutionary government uh, did a room-by-room inventory of the contents of each room. They were nothing if not sort of bureaucratic and organized. And so they did this for many of the properties that they were going into. And as a result, we can really reconstruct with a great deal of specificity what else was in the room that held Robert's four paintings. And, um, you know, that's really also sort of the proof that the four paintings were there. And it also gives us a sense of the color scheme of the of the the room overall. And, you know, I think from that you can sort of extrapolate looking at the paintings as they are now and seeing them together. There is a certain harmony in terms of the colors overall. And so... Such as the colors in the leather chairs and yeah, exactly. Moroccan and brown leather, I think you wrote. It's green leather, uh, red velvet, cream walls, and a lot of gilding. Which and you can kind of see how that would work with. Yeah, these I, I think you can. You know, the paintings are have a very sort of subdued quality in terms of their palette, and imagining them hanging against these walls, I think they would have almost appeared as windows into into the outside, and. Then, you know, these accents, these really accents of bright colors in the furniture would kind of have made them sing. And the way these, uh, the, the perspectives go together, these really, you know, sort of dramatic arches um, in, the, in the way that we, in the installation at the gallery, we have them hung, you know, I think at about the same height as they would have been originally. And there's a place to sit in the center of the of the gallery. And as you sit there, you really can start imagining what it must have been like to be in the in this living room where, you know, you look up and you have these crumbling arches and then beyond them these glimpses of these cloudy skies and you know how sort of immersive that must have been for the sitter. Uh, again, we have the paintings installed in a in a room that was probably not so much smaller than the original Petit Salon. And so it gives a sense of, you know, how sort of cohesive and, you know, to what extent the paintings really must have been interacting with each other. So this is a four-painting installation. Robert's installations, you know, may have been six paintings, eight paintings, maybe maybe more. Obviously, there's a long-standing French art historical interest in antiquity, Claude, Poussin, and there's a long-standing French interest in architectural decoration. Where does Robert's idea or interest in using paintings in groupings as decoration come from? I think, so you're right, in the 18th century in particular, there was a real explosion in the sort of idea of painting as decoration. 
this draws upon an earlier, in France, I think a 17th century sort of ideal of the idea of series, painted series, works that are intended to go together, generally with a strong narrative intent. So, you know, series about someone's life, um, religious series, for instance. In the mid-18th century, you see a real kind of explosion of that. And I think in, in many ways it's linked with, you know, sort of there's a general shift away from Versailles as the place where the aristocracy was really required to live and a move into Paris and a move to sort of uh, create residences that people were proud of. And here the painting, the quality of the painting, the subject matter, it does shift to become more decorative, less narrative, less didactic in terms of what the in terms of trying to really strongly educate the viewer. I think it's it's complicated today to use the word decorative because it's it, it's a it's a term that has slightly negative connotations, I would say. Although in the French context, you know, it continues through Matisse into the 1950s. So maybe in the American I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, of course, in terms of the American context, but, it, you know, there would be a French tradition of decorative painting for, you know, 170 years after Robert. Yeah, very true. But what I just want to emphasize is that the kinds of paintings that Robert was doing, and I think this is one reason for his popularity as a painter of decorative ensembles, the kinds of painting that he was doing weren't just, you know, sort of pretty decorative paintings that would immediately please the viewer visually. They were also really imbued with citations and references, you know, and these could be representations within a general composition of a statue that was really recognizable. So the statue of Marcus Aurelius, for instance, which, you know, he would have expected his very sort of well-educated and well-traveled clients to, to recognize. This could also be, you know, figures that are lifted from other paintings. And so in one of the Chicago paintings, there's a figure that comes from Raphael's The School of Athens. And that's certainly uh, something that people would have, you know, that he would have expected his viewers to, to, to notice. And so even though, you know, maybe the paintings are less strongly narrative, I think that they're still very content rich. And that's... That's something that I think is important to emphasize in relation to Robert because in the 19th century and early 20th century, his work actually really was dismissed as decorative in the negative sense, and he really fell out of favor. One of the other things Robert does, in addition to, to paintings that stand alone and paintings that are these big decorative cycles, is that he does garden design, what we would now call landscape architecture. What what is the relationship, if there is one, between Robert's interest in, in that and his interest in painting? I think that he was really interested in the in the disposition and organization of space. And so I would tend to relate his activity as a garden designer to his sort of conception of decorative ensembles and thinking about where paintings should sit in a room. When he approached gardens... He really, he seems to have thought 
very much about the sort of visitor experience, walking through a garden, and how that should affect one emotionally. Robert actually designed or oversaw the design of a number of gardens for his clients. Uh, Unfortunately, today, relatively few of them still exist, you know, as he originally designed it. But he did often paint his garden designs. Uh, So another relationship between garden design and painting. He painted them, and that helps us to, to reconstruct what they must have originally looked like. Do we know if we painted them after the fact or, you know, in planning? Well, actually, it's both. So the way that the way Robert's gardens worked was he would essentially oversee the sort of creation of a space, meaning, you know, try to think about how the paths in the garden should be organized and think about putting these different monuments, uh, sort of little miniature temples or uh, columns uh, would be sprinkled throughout the garden at um, regular intervals. And so as you walked along, you would come across one monument after another. And each monument was supposed to kind of bring you into a different mental state or emotional state or make you reflect. And so the whole process of moving through the garden would really be a kind of reflective journey almost. When Robert when Robert worked on his gardens, he would often draw or paint each individual monument as he wanted it to appear and then work with an architect or a sculptor to create that in in stone or, you know, whatever the material. And so often those I guess what I would think of as preparatory sketches for the garden remain. Then he would also often, it seems, paint the garden as it was, you know, after he had finished it, which is an interesting commentary on his own work, actually. You know, it's a way of sort of stepping back from something that he himself had created, but, you know, then recreating it in a different media, which is, I think, quite quite interesting. And so, for instance, for the uh, Marquis de Laborde, who was the owner of the four Chicago paintings, Robert not only oversaw the installation of this one particular salon, but he also oversaw the creation and sort of conceptualization of the garden that surrounded the chateau. And in the process, you know, it meant that he created individual monuments and he also created the entire flow of the space around the chateau. And then he painted it. And we actually have that painting in the exhibition. So, and it's hung not too far from the Chicago pictures. So it's a sort of a really nice juxtaposition because you have the four paintings that he did for the person's, the interior of the person's house. And then further along, you have the painting that shows the chateau and the garden that Robert also painted. And the painting that he that he did of this of this park it was actually more a park than a garden since it was enormous i think that the marquis de laborde the owner kept it in his paris house so I suppose for the owner, it was a way for him to look and you know when he was thinking about his country estate which is which is where the garden was, he could look at his uh, painting in paris and and you know sort of imagine himself to be there. So we've been talking almost entirely about the, the 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 gardens, the ruins, the structures, the landscapes in Robert's paintings, and and very little about the people in Robert's paintings. 
are are we meant to did the artist mean us to to take things learn things think things based on on the the scenes of people he, he put you know very small in the foreground or are they just populating space I think it's both. I think that sometimes he introduced figures into the landscape really to give a sense of scale. And you see that, you know, for instance, in the Fontaine de Vaucluse, where he has these people right up in the foreground that really emphasize the sheer height of the cliffs behind them. I think that often, though, he introduced people into the into the scene as a way of commenting on the scene. You know, so again, the family groups in the uh, painting with the statue of Marcus Aurelius, where they're, you know, completely moving into this arch, or the people there, we have a really spectacular painting from the Los Angeles County Museum of Arts. It's It's an enormous painting, um, I think about 10 feet high. Actually, it was, or it is, the largest work that our registrar has ever brought into the, the West Building. So um, that alone is a good reason to come and see this show. It's it's hung in a, in, a, in a placement right online with the Garden Court, and so you can really see it, you know, even from outside the show, and it really sort of pulls you in. It's an architectural fantasy that is set in a garden but you know it's a fantasy because the it's there's a fountain that's you know shooting water and the water is going right up to the sky it's just impossibly high and then it's also uh, cascading down these stairs that are incredibly you know incredibly steep unrealistically steep and so you really have to crane your neck to see the top of the stairs and right at the very top there are two tiny figures that are silhouetted against the sky that really give a sense of scale. But at the bottom of that scene you have people who are sort of going about their going about their business, well-dressed, certain well-dressed people promenading in the garden and then you have someone who looks like a beggar in a cloak uh, sitting right in the foreground. And we don't have any writing to indicate what Robert thought of the painting or, you know, why he introduced these specific figures. But certainly they do contribute to a mood of strangeness and they really make the viewer think about what's going on and they really emphasize the fact that this is a sort of a fantasy scene because the the juxtaposition and the way that they're dressed is quite striking. You know, this one person who seems to be a beggar and then these other women who are just incredibly well-dressed and um, really enjoying the scene, you know, which in itself is a bit dreamlike. And, you know, I mean, I guess you really could extrapolate into and think that this is sort of a a reflection on, you know, kind of what's this sort of juxtaposition of past and present or between, you know, fantasy and reality that could could be seen as rather profound, you know, that you have these people, different stations, um, stations in life shown in the in the painting and, you know, really not paying any attention to each other, but just sort of there. I think it's sort of interesting. So the revolution. Robert is imprisoned during the revolution, I think in 1793. Somehow, perhaps you know, he is able to make drawings and to paint while in two prisons. 
Yes, he was in prison for 10 months in total, and he did continue to work. He drew and he painted a fairly small-scale paintings. Um, I don't think that he had much access to supplies. And the sort of proof of that is that he also ended up painting on plates, basically on whatever he was able to, to get. And so there's a series of porcelain plates painted by Robert, you know, scenes from his imagination, scenes representing what was going around him, what was going on around him in prison. We have one in the exhibition. There are actually very few because, of course, you know, they're, they're quite fragile and uh, didn't, don't seem to have really survived. But we do have one in the exhibition, and it's fascinating because on the... So it's a, it's a pastoral scene, clearly one that he's imagining from his prison. And on the back of the plate is an inscription saying that Robert, I, Robert, did this in, from the prison of Saint-Lazare in 1794. So a very interesting documentation of of what was going on. And he also painted um, and drew other scenes that really give a glimpse into what prison life was like. Including an inmate in a room, which of course might be him. Yes. And and a painting of a warden. Watercolor, I think. Mm-hmm. Watercolor? A watercolor, of a yeah. warden. Yeah. And a very claustrophobic and I think quite modern scene, a small a painting of uh, people in the corridor of the prison of San Lazar, which is really very striking and and quite poignant, I think. About sixteen inches by twelve. You know, this is this is almost certainly a a, a, a stupid, preposterous question. I mean, obviously, Robert is is living these things, not 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 touristing his way through them. But there is a certain. 18th, late 18th century fascination with asylums, the insane, prisons of a certain sort running throughout Western European art history, perhaps most famously in Goya. Could Robert have known about that or cared? Well, that's a that's a good question. I It's not clear to what extent he... I, I don't know that he, in this particular instance, and certainly he does often try to sort of situate himself in a larger art historical tradition and make references to the works of other artists. I'm not totally convinced that in this particular case where, you know, it was a terribly stressful and I think pretty difficult time for him. So, yeah, it's not clear. He never, he he didn't leave much information about what he meant his art to be in prison. What we do know is that he was fairly depressed. He wasn't able to work as much as he wanted to. He really tried to immerse himself in work. He you know, was able to exchange letters with people from the outside, and he was able to have his plates, uh, the, you know, this plate series that I mentioned, he was able to have people bring them out and sell them for him so that he was able to get a little more money to buy supplies. And I think probably food, because the food was really not, you know, very appealing. <laughs> there are no paintings of food. That might be one way to <laughs> But, you know, and this is clearly a very, I think at some level, a deeply upsetting experience that really seems to have stayed with him. And I say that because in the last room of the exhibition, we have a painting on loan to us from the Getty Museum. It's the demolition of the Chateau de Meudon. It's painted in the early 19th century in 1806. So this is now some time after 
uh, the revolution and after Robert's release from prison, he was basically released right after the fall of Robespierre. Can I, can I just jump in for a quick second? He, he, he is released from prison, but he was supposed to be guillotined. Someone else yeah, was, yes. was killed um, by mistake. We're not totally sure if that's we're not totally sure if that's apocryphal story or if it's true. But the legend goes that he was uh, he was uh, his name was on the list of people to be carted off to the guillotine that day. And because his surname is fairly common, someone else was taken in his place. Yes, yes. Sorry. You know. So back to the chateau. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does actually really, I mean, whether or not we believe this, it is a fact that many of his clients, his friends, you know, the Marquis de Laborde, the owner of the Chicago paintings, um, who was a good friend of Robert's, and many of his other friends were taken off. And, and he was witness to this. Selmy was guillotined. So it's it was extremely, you know, sort of, I think, fresh and raw for him. And, and he certainly wasn't sheltered from from this by any means. And so with the Getty painting, uh, the demolition of the Chateau de Meudon, it's painted in the early 19th century. But so Robert paints the demolition of a royal hunting lodge. The Chateau, Chateau de Meudon was a, was a hunting lodge that for which he which he knew well because he had been commissioned or asked to oversee the gardens of the Chateau de Meudon. And so he knew it from its heyday as a sort of, you know, seat of the monarchy under the Ancien Regime. It was actually the the place in which the Dauphin was born, or I'm sorry, the place in which the Dauphin died just before the revolution broke out in 1789. So there was a strong association with the Ancien Regime. And like many of the buildings, uh, the royal uh, chateau and, you know, also church uh, buildings under the revolution, uh, the Chateau de Meudon was uh, vandalized and partly destroyed. This was something that was extremely prevalent for, you know, any any building that had an association with the uh, with the Ancien Regime and with the monarchy. And then, you know, in the early 19th century, the uh, chateau was further destroyed by a fire. And so it was really, you know, it was already a wreck and then there was this fire. And so the decision was made to demolish it completely. And Robert, who, you know, as I said, had known the chateau in its heyday, went to sketch at the site of the the demolition and to, to, to watch what was going on. And based on the sketch, he made this painting. And clearly it's a painting with which he has a lot of affinity and a sort of emotional connection because he actually represents himself in the corner of the painting. Um, It's the man in the blue coat who's shown sketching with the bald head, which is very recognizably recognizable as him. And then the woman standing behind him uh, seems to be his wife. And this was a painting that, you know, he inserts himself in it. It's a painting of a a ruin, a modern ruin, but a ruin nonetheless, and, you know, sort of a ruin of a building that he knew well. And so there are a lot of layers and things that resonate with themes that we know he was really interested in. And he kept this painting with him until his death. Um, So it was in, it was listed in the inventory made up of his, of his possessions after his death. And his wife ended up giving it to a friend of theirs. And so clearly a work that was, 
you know, important to him. And I think that might kind of give us a sense of, of the way in which the revolution continued to sort of be in his thoughts and, you know, all of the change and the sort of idea of the passage of time and, and the, the loss of a society, basically. He was about 75 when he died, and this painting dates to 1806. He died in 1808. Well, Yuriko Jacal, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, Tyler. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Join J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in a new podcast, Art and Ideas. In the debut episodes, discover the history of porcelain with potter and author Edmund DeWall. Explore the depth of visual intelligence with art historian Yves Alambois on Ellsworth Kelly. Delve into the formative years of Los Angeles-based architect Frank Gehry. Unearth the ancient past with archaeologist Colin Renfrew. And examine the history of Black Mountain College with curator Helen Molesworth. Available on getty.edu slash podcasts or search for it in your favorite podcast player. Welcome back. Next up, a segment from the conversation I had earlier this year with Metropolitan Museum of Art curator Catherine Bacher. She recently co-organized retrospective of Hubert Robert contemporary Elizabeth Viget Lebrun. The show was at the Metropolitan through May 15th. Before we get to the revolution and its extraordinary impact on Vijay's career, let's just, I guess, maybe pause for a moment to consider where, where she is now. She's made a number of paintings of the Queen. She's done lots of work for kind of for the court and for Nouveau Riche in, in Paris. Do you have a couple favorites from this pre-revolutionary period? I do have. There's Calon, who is a finance minister, a magnificent gentleman in a black suit with a red curtain wearing a white wig. I find this is extraordinarily engaging as a portrait for someone who's posing in his official guise. Then there are several portraits of women which were shown at the Salon and which I admire because they are painted on wood and they have the most extraordinary transparency of color. Vigia Lebrun visited Holland and the Netherlands and she saw portraits by Rubensen, and she was very, very much influenced by them and began to paint on wood, which gives a very particular effect. There's one of the, of the Comtesse Grammont Caderousse, for example, and they're exceptionally transparent and beautiful in their coloring. These are among my favorite pictures. You know, you mentioned the, the many portraits of women at this period, in this period, and indeed, uh, Vijay paints lots and lots of women. Is the proportion of women to men as portraiture subjects, I don't know, it's probably about 80-20 in this show. It's not right. We have underestimated the men. This was not done deliberately. We just tried to get the best pictures that are available, which is what we always try to do. And when we got to the end, we found that we had underrepresented the men and that we had also underrepresented the children. 
I was going to ask about that too. Yeah. Both. Yes, you're right. So at the risk of asking maybe an unanswerable question, do you have a guess as to why the paintings of women are better than the paintings of the men? Well, maybe she had more in common with the women. But maybe we should have cast our net a little wider and embraced a few more men. One tends to choose what one thinks of as the best example without registering what the sex or age of the person is. And that's just the way it came out. But it's an, under, it's an underrepresentation of both men and children. There are a couple of marvelous works of paper of children, even babies, in this show, kind of from right about these years, especially from, from the early 1780s. And she painted her own daughter a lot. Oh, did she? Yeah. Yes, she did. I mean, she over, painted, her, over her, she painted her own daughter a lot. There's a portrait of her own daughter looking in a mirror. There's a portrait of her own daughter uh, largely naked, although correctly covered. There's a portrait of her own daughter in her teenage years as a sort of goddess with a basket of flowers on her head. She painted a larger representation of children than we have shown, although we do have these two wonderful portraits that have the royal children in them, not only the portrait of Marie Antoinette with the children, but a portrait of the oldest daughter, who was called Madame Royale, and of the Dauphin, the heir to the throne, seated in a garden and holding a nest of baby birds. So... We've not let them out, left them out altogether, which is also interesting in some other ways. She was a good still life painter. The French operated on the hierarchy of genre. You should wish to paint history, which included the Bible and mythology. And then if you couldn't reach up to that august level, next came portraiture. And um, next after portraiture came still life. And she would also have been an absolutely marvelous still life painter. She's very, very good at painting fruit and flowers. And did manage to paint a few history subjects. You know, two years after that portrait of Marie Antoinette and her children that we were discussing, the French Revolution blows the doors off of everything. As, as we keep mentioning Marie Antoinette, I suppose it's fairly obvious that Vigée was, was very close to royalty and to the aristocracy. What impact does the revolution have on her and... Does it change her circumstance and her art, or mostly just her circumstance? I really think mostly just her circumstance, but it changed her circumstance in every way. She was very, very frightened. She writes herself that she left immediately after the march on Versailles. She felt personally frightened. And she says that she got into a public coach together with her daughter, who was a little girl of six or seven years old, and the daughter's governess, dressed down a public vehicle, and she was escorted to the gates of Paris, where there used to be barriers during the Revolution, by her husband on horseback and by Hubert Robert also on horseback. And she represents this as they are seeing her out of Paris safely. She went to Italy, and she presented this first as an occasion to go abroad because it was customary for highly trained artists in France to complete their education by going to Italy. And so she didn't always say, I'm running away from the revolution. She sometimes said, I'm going to Italy to complete my education. In point of fact, she felt that she had no choice. And when she got there, she had absolutely no assets. And so she had to make a new career for herself, which she did with the largest amount of skill that could possibly be imagined. 
by seeking out people whom she had known in France, including foreigners, and by making these very good connections abroad. So the first place she went was to Florence, and there she wanted to see the Gallery of the Grand Dukes of Tuscany at the Uffizi, which is a self-portrait gallery. And she was very, very happy to be asked to paint her self-portrait for the gallery. And she went on to Rome, where she opened her first studio outside France, painted a picture of herself, and put it on exhibition there. So that then she began to invite people to visit her, and they could see this self-portrait, and they could see the artist herself, and they could see what a very good painter she was. And in this way, she began to make other connections and to receive other commissions. She always worked her sources well. One of her earliest commissions, some of her earliest commissions abroad were from the Queen of Naples, whose name was Maria Carolina, and who was my Antoinette's sister. So shortly she was showing her work in Rome, and Maria Carolina heard that she had arrived, came to see her work, presumably, and invited her to paint the Neapolitan royal children. She was very, very good at finding her way when she went abroad. I have not seen the show in New York yet, but in the catalog, two self-portraits, one a pastel of of Vijay of herself in traveling costume and that oil painting that's now at the Uffizi seemed to be kind of a hinge between France and, and the European travels. You mentioned the oil painting a moment ago. Why also a pastel? The pastel's terrific. Pastel because it's such a typical sort of a thing for this artist to do. She goes off in a public coach. She gets to Rome some months later. She makes a self-portrait in traveling clothes, very simply dressed, very dressed down, in which she looks about 19 years old to me. Yeah, no, or younger. Smiling <laughs> like a child. And she presents this self-portrait to the director of the French Academy in Rome. Now, the training of a French artist was to go to Italy if you had official backing and to study at the Académie de France à Rome and there finish your education by traveling and seeing the wonders of Italy, by looking at the antiquities, by drawing them, by meeting other artists. Well, this was not an opportunity that she had, but she turned her exile into this opportunity and gave this pastel to Ménageau, who was the director of the Académie de France à Rome, and he in turn gave her an apartment to live in. So that she made a situation for herself which was parallel. And this is written on the back, not the story, but the ownership, because Ménageau then wrote that he would give it back to her daughter, which he later did. So it's very typical of her that she would show herself as beautiful, that she would show herself as young, and that she would use her self-portrait to find free housing in Rome. You mentioned a few moments ago that her style doesn't change much as she's traveling to cities such as Florence, Rome, Vienna, St. Petersburg, Moscow, and so on. Is that a conscious decision in that maintaining her, her Frenchness and, and her, her professional ties to French loyalty are important everywhere she goes? I would think that's probably right. She was a royalist, but I think also her reputation abroad must to some degree have hinged on her Frenchness. 
And one of the reasons I would think this is so is that French taste has often been a leading taste in the arts and was at this time. French dress has often been leading in society and was at this time. And the French language was spoken everywhere she went because French was the international language then. I really never thought too much about this and I didn't read anything about it until relatively lately. But she didn't trouble to learn any Italian or German when she was in Vienna or Russian when she was in St. Petersburg because everyone spoke French then. So yes, I think that her qualities as a French woman and as a French stylist, if we can say it that way, were probably important for her continuing career. And she was herself so attached to her nationality that she would have wanted to maintain this. I think probably as a personal matter, even if it hadn't been beneficial to her career. And she certainly never failed to notice what was beneficial. So I think French is very important in every aspect. So to art historians in going through the post-revolution oeuvre, group it by geography and consciously consider what are the major or best paintings by geography, or does that matter not so much? I don't know how much it matters, but the period immediately after the French Revolution was such a difficult period culturally, more broadly, because it, because it, it fed into the Napoleonic Revolution, so to say. And it was an extremely difficult time for artists because once the French Revolution erupted, there were no more commissions. The people who would have commissioned this sort of art, but not only this sort, history paintings as well, there was simply, the, the disruption was so tremendous that there was nowhere for works of art to emerge in a certain sense. People, people who were living in this disrupted way, either because they were participating in the revolution or because they were against it, were not spending their time sitting in portrait studios or, you know, buying pictures of Adonis and the hunt. It wasn't the culture. And this, this is something that, that spread. And it was very, very difficult for French artists because the generation next after her had an extremely hard time. I mean, if you think of Baron Gros and Guerin, these people, they lost years because they emerged these artists who emerged at the time of David, and many of them in David's studio, they would normally have gone to the Academy of France. And pretty soon it was closed. And there was nobody to buy their work. So they were wandering around, loosely itinerant, shall we say, painting portrait miniatures for people. A lot of the artists who stayed in France also had a very difficult time. La Guillard, who was admitted to the Academy at the same moment as Vigée Lebrun, was a person with Republican sympathies. She believed in the revolution. She believed in opening the academy. She stayed in France. She, however, also had very little work for a decade or more. Most of the artists who were fully mature or maturing in the 1780s lost time from 1789 well into the 90s and sometimes longer because of the political disruptions in Europe. And so it changed all their lives. And one of the reasons she's so unusual is that she went abroad and made an entirely new and equally successful career.
Hardly anybody did that. And hardly anybody moved from one national culture to another as easily as she apparently did. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.